This is a special edition of Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. I'm Steve Mursky. Martin Gardner died this past Saturday, May 22nd. He was 95 years old. And he is still probably the person most associated with Scientific American magazine. His mathematical games column ran from 1956 to 1981. He also published more than 70 books and was a truly beloved figure around the world. Douglas Hofstetter is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Gödel Escher Bach and took over Martin's column, changing the name to the anagram Metamagical Themas. On Monday, May 24th, I called Hofstetter in Paris to talk about Martin Gardner. You wrote back in 1992, I came to understand that there were thousands of people spread all around the world, mathematicians, physicists, philosophers, computer scientists, on and on, who thought of Martin Gardner's column not merely as a feature of Scientific American, but as its very heart and soul. How was Martin the heart and soul of the magazine? Well, when I was, uh, when I came to know Martin Gardner's column, I was probably, uh, on the order of 14 years old, uh, and, uh, it might have been a little bit earlier. And, uh, I will always remember that, uh, the excitement that there would be if I went to the mailbox of my parents' house and found the copy of Scientific American had arrived, and I instantly flipped it open, looked to the page where Martin Gardner's column was, went to that page, and was riveted by whatever he said every time without any exception. And, uh, and I realized later, not at that time, but, um, perhaps many years later, that many, many, many people did exactly that. That in some sense, Scientific American was just the wrapping, uh, itself was just the wrapping for Martin Gardner's column. Martin Gardner's column was what it was all about. It was so full of profundity and, uh, humor and uh, paradox, uh, exploration of fantastic new ideas, uh, so stimulating to uh, people who, who enjoy mathematics or philosophy, just the savoring of beauty and paradox mixed together with also a wonderful dose of sense of humor. You wrote in that 1992 essay about Martin's, for pa- Martin's passion for paradox, and and you wrote, I would say that more than anything, this passion gave Martin his virtually unerring sense for what is important. How how did the the attraction to paradox inform his ideas about what was truly important to be thinking about? Well, I think that that somehow when um, when human thought. Human intuition, I should say, the, the sort of the everyday intuition conflicts with the way the world really is. It always hides something. There, there is something profound going on when uh, our everyday intuition is in 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 conflict with the uh, the nature of the world. Uh, and uh, this happens all the time in mathematics and in physics, and and it also happens in a, in a certain sense in philosophy. Uh, when we try to understand uh, any deep question uh, in those disciplines, uh, and uh, Martin was drawn uh, in, in a, with a you know, powerful magnetic sense towards these places where uh, there is a, uh, a disconnect between human intuition and the truth, and uh, and he, he 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 savored them, he relished this kind.
kind of thing. And he made the reader understand uh, how deep uh, these things were um, and how mysterious the world is. Uh, and I have never seen anyone who writes that way uh, about the nature of truth. Uh, I mean, a beautiful book that he wrote, uh, it's not his column, but it was The Ambidextrous Universe. It was a book that, uh, that went into enormous detail about the question of left-right symmetry and time-reversal symmetry and the, uh, the way in which uh, these kinds of symmetries pervade nature and pervade physics. And then it, had been, it turned out that there was a third symmetry in that family called charge conjugation symmetry, which is the, simply the interchange of a particle with its antiparticle. And if you ch combine all three, that is time reversal and uh, mirror reversal and charge conjugation or reversing particles and their antiparticles, there's a theorem in physics that says that, that if you do all those things, the, uh, the world is the same if you do all three of them. It used to have been thought that the world would be the same if you did any one of them. If you, that, that is, that if you did a mirror reversal, the, anything that happened in the mirror would be physically possible. And Martin explains uh, very beautifully why that's not the case, counter to our intuition that processes in a mirror aren't always uh, physically uh, realizable, and why time-reversed processes are not possible. And that's a very profound issue having to do with uh, the, 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 the arrow of time, which seems to conflict with the symmetry of the laws of physics. There uh, there's so many things. I mean, that's just an example, but The, the Ambidextrous Universe was a, a, a beautiful book that I've given to many friends. Uh, just an example, one of so many books that he wrote that, 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 are, that explain beautifully and with millions of examples uh, these profound things. Yeah, he wrote a book called The Wise of a Philosophical Scrivener, The Wise, W-H-Y-S, of a philosophical scrivener, and at your instigation, he then wrote a bad review of his own book for the New York Review of Books. T talk a little bit about why you uh, recommended that he do that and what the purpose of that was. Well, of course, I didn't know whether he could. I mean, of course, he could try, but I didn't know whether the editor would <laughs> approve of such a thing. But in fact, the editor had a good sense of humor. And, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't remember why I suggested it, but I do know that Martin was extremely fond of intellectual hoaxes. He thought that the hoax was a marvelous way of getting people to think deeply. And he put in a lot of hoaxes in his own column, usually in the April issue, because that, of course, gives you an excuse. But, uh, in this case of, of this review, I don't know if it came out in April or when, but, uh, all I know is that he, he, he convinced the, uh, New York, uh, Review of Books editor to do, to let him do it. And he, he wrote a scathing review of, of his book. But the point was that Martin knew very well what the objections would be. And he wrote the objections very well. He represented the opposite side very, very well. But as he went on, it became sort of more and more heavy and more and more strained. And finally, in the last sentence, he said that the uh, that that uh, the the narrator of this review, the the persona that he was putting on, said that uh, Martin Gardner occasionally writes uh, reviews under pseudonyms, and one of the pseudonyms that he uses is blah blah.
blah, blah. And that was the name of the, the person who was supposedly writing this review. So he, really, he, he revealed in the very last line that this was all a, not a hoax, but that it was his own take on um, how the world would disagree with him. And, um, and in a sense, he, he really did a good job of showing how the world would disagree with him. I think that nobody could have written a more accurate negative, negative review of his book, and yet it, 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 it brought out all the interest of the book at the same time. Uh, I mean, it brought out all the issues that he was trying to cover in a, in a lovely way. It's actually a, a terrific exercise for any writer who's trying to, to make an important point to, uh, to go through it and challenge yourself. Darwin does it in uh, Origin of Species to some degree. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I, it, it requires a lot of self-control and self, uh, accurate self-perception and, and so forth. Uh, I, I, I might add, you know, I, there, there's so many things that Martin Gardner did that, that are so important to me, but I, I should mention his first, uh, the first book of his that I ever saw, which was Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science, which I remember very clearly running into at age 14 in a friend's bookshelf. And, that book, uh, just, uh, what's the word, uh, uh, the scales fell from my eyes, I think is the expression, um, meaning that I, up until age 14, even though I had grown up in a family, uh, my father was a physicist and I was very exposed to science, I never really thought too much about, you know, things that are sort of, uh, you might say superstitions or, or just sort of, I don't know, mysterious forces in the world, you know, ESP and paranormal things and predicting the future and, and such things. I had never really given it much thought, and I was as susceptible to such ideas, I suppose, as anyone else is. And, uh, I mean, it made sense vaguely, at least to me, that, that you could dream things and they could come, you could dream things that had happened on the other side of the world and they would turn out to have been true or that you could predict the future in some way by some mysterious means. Well, when I came across that book, uh, Martin attacked uh, maybe 15 to 20 different uh, kinds of crazy belief systems, and I'd never seen anything like it, never, ever. And the writing style was so incisive, so full of pepper, and so full of uh, uh, intense clarity, I mean, just bursts of these sort of fireworks of clarity. I mean, you would just understand why these ideas were so ridiculous, so nonsensical. And um, as I say, the scale fell from my eyes. I read every chapter with enormous fascination, and I was also fascinated by the fact that Martin, this was the second edition, and in his preface to it, he said that when the first edition had come out, he was inundated by letters from enthusiastic people who, who said to him that they loved every chapter of his book except for one, and they would always pick out the one that they their favorite uh, crackpot belief system was being attacked in, and they would say they were so happy to see all the others destroyed. And I thought this was an extremely funny lesson about humanity. Um, and, um, and as I say, it, it was a, uh, a real revelation to me. And Martin, one of his sacred causes for his entire life was the, uh, to combat pseudoscience. And he did it more masterfully and more, 
uh, more intensely, perhaps, than anyone else on the surface of the Earth. And I think that's one of his great and permanent legacies. And uh, you credit him with giving a real boost to your your famous book, Gertel Escher Bach. Uh, when it came out, he devoted a, a full column space to discussing it. And uh, you think that had a lot to do with the popularity of the book? I do, and I and I want to point out something about that. My close friend Scott Kim was working in the same building as I was when I was writing uh, Gödel Escher Bach, and Scott was very, very involved in uh, helping me uh, uh, evaluate whether passages were good or not, and, and giving, stimulating me, giving me good ideas. I, I use a number of ideas due to Scott in the book, and Scott wrote a piece, I don't know, maybe a 25-page article called Strange Loop Gazette back when the book was not yet published. And he sent it off to Martin. And I know that that, that, that Scott Kim's Strange Loop Gazette had a very big impact on Martin Gardner and made him understand a lot of things about my book. And I owe a great deal to Scott Kim, but my point is not only about Scott. My point is really that Martin was so in contact with so many brilliant individuals. Scott is a truly brilliant person. In fact, Martin devoted at least one or two columns, maybe even three, to Scott's ideas. So, um, you know, uh, but my point is that that Martin was in contact with these brilliant minds all around uh, the United States and Europe and the rest of the world, uh, and uh, he managed to stay on top of the correspondence and to incorporate good ideas uh, that came from all sorts of places, and uh, he was very willing toward the later part of his life to share with uh, people the immense amount of stuff that he had received. I think Don Knuth at Stanford is the person who is the official uh, most biggest beneficiary. I think he has all of Martin's files and uh, I mean some incredible treasure trove of, of ideas. Um, and, and so my point is that, yeah, Martin did a wonderful favor for me, but I think it was partly due to Scott Kim, but, but of course it was filtered through Martin's intelligence and Martin was the, uh, was the author of the article. But I think that, that somehow Scott Kim triggered it and, and, and this is very typical of how Martin worked. He took people's ideas and expressed them in the best possible way. And in 1981, you find yourself at Martin Gardner's house. Uh, I think it was late 1980. Yeah, late, late 1980. You're preparing to actually take over his column, and uh, could you talk a little bit about his his time with you there and and uh, the day you spent together? Yeah. Well, what I remember is he came to visit. He came to pick me up at the train station, and uh, he was very very sweet, very kind, very uh, gentle, and and very humble. And uh, his sense of humor came at it. Quickly, and uh, sort of a self-effacing uh, sense of humor, and, and we arrived at his house, and I was uh, introduced to Charlotte, his wife, who was a, uh, a very kind woman, a little bit peppery, but uh, extremely generous. And um, and uh, and I, I entered their house, and I saw that it was very tastefully decorated, uh, and uh, that uh, there was no evidence 
on the lower floors, at least the, the, the you know the main floor, that there was any kind of connection with mathematics or science. There were just ordinary kinds of pictures, but very very tasteful. And then Martin and I climbed up to the third floor where his study was, and um, it was just you know completely jam packed with books that were so fascinating to me. I I, you know, I didn't know how to how to resist picking up a book after book after book, uh, but I had to because we were just sitting there talking, and we talked and talked and talked. And Martin was thinking that when I would take over the column, that it would be very similar in spirit to his own, but I was thinking that it would have some things in common, but not not as much as he thought. And, um, and so uh, I remember there was a... You know, he was showing me all sorts of things that he had hoped to put into the column, uh, and uh, and I was thinking to myself, wow, yeah, these would have been great, but this is not the kind of thing that I myself am likely to do. Um, and um, but um, I, I, you know, I, I was fascinated by everything he told me. And as I uh, wrote in that article, uh, we were interrupted at one point by a phone call from Ray Smolian, a logician and magician and musician, although I didn't know about the latter two. I only knew of him as a logician at the time and a very, very influential logician on myself. He had written a book that had a great impact on me. And, and so here I was listening, overhearing this conversation between a person that I truly admired, Ray Smolian, and Martin Gardner, who I admired, had admired even longer, and uh, I had no idea that they had any connection. And what was even stranger was that this was a conversation about a book that Smolian had written called "The Tao Is Silent," and I was learning that Smolian was, you know, was this multifaceted person and fascinating person, and it it. Again, it brought home to me the way in which Martin Gardner was at the hub of a of a vast universe of brilliant, sparkling intellects, including people like Marvin Minsky uh, at, at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab and John Conway, who at the time was in England and later came to Princeton and who who invented so many deep and fascinating mathematical ideas, especially uh, the game of life, to which Martin devoted several columns and which was an incredibly important thing in uh, in bringing new ideas to uh, the world of computation and um, uh, about the cellular automata. And uh, and uh, Donald Knuth at Stanford, uh, the great computer scientist, uh, Percy Diaconis, a, a uh, statistician who is fascinated by paradoxes of probability, and a great magician as well. And Ray Hyman, a psychologist who had spent a great deal of his life debunking people, such as Uri Geller, and uh, James Randi, one of the great magicians of our era, who also was one of the most important debunkers of uh, pseudoscience in the world. And all these people, and I'm just scratching the surface, all these people he was in constant contact with. They were close friends, and it was, it was really quite mind-boggling. And I found out about this when I was spending the day with him. And um, as I say, he was kind of grooming me to be his exact successor, and I was realizing that I couldn't be, and I, I, I would fall flat on my face if I tried to be a copy 
of, of Martin Gardner, but that I had my own interests and that I would have to go a little bit in my other, in my own direction. And so when I, you know, did do the column, I, I, I rearranged the letters in his column, Mathematical Games, in order to spell a different pair of words, metamagical themas, which is what my column was, but it used the same letters, uh, tipping my hat to Martin Gardner, but at the same time saying I can't do what he did for 25 years so beautifully. And, uh, and so, you know, that's, that was, uh, that was how my column, you know, started out. He must have gotten a kick out of uh, the rearrangement of the letters, too. It was it was quite fun. I I, I love playing with words, and Martin is, is was an inveterate player with words uh, and with uh, language, and he savored the way in which other people did it. And uh, he he had this uh, way of of of, uh, of inspiring creativity in, among his readers. And he would, uh, you know, show a, a limerick that had the wrong number of lines, and in the next issue there would be several limericks that had all sorts of things wrong with them. Usually self-referential lyric uh, mm-hmm. limericks, um, you know, that would describe their own defects uh, and do so in the wittiest ways. And uh, he just had a way of, of coaxing creativity out of people um, and uh, and inspiring people. And when I say people, I mean they range in. They range from those who are simply lovers of mathematics uh, without necessarily having world-class talent to world-class mathematicians such as Don Knuth and uh, John Conway and Ron Graham, who was the president of the American Mathematical Society and uh, a great juggler, incidentally. Uh, and uh, and also, I think Ron may be a magician, although I'm not positive of that. But the point is that these people are multifaceted, and and Martin interested people all the way from the humble teenager that I had been to the to the you know the uh, the uh, Fields Medal winning mathematician, uh, and uh, there was a continuum of people. And when I talk, I, I don't mean to limit it to mathematicians, because as I say, he was, he was involved in many fields, the philosophy of science, the philosophy of mind, uh, the you know, magic, debunking, uh, and uh, poetry. Martin was a, uh, a, a, an extreme advocate of formal verse with precise rhyming, and uh, precise rhythm, and he, you know, he didn't make any, uh, he didn't uh, hide this interest. He had great disdain for poetry with uh, without structure, and he published a lot of volumes of annotated poetry and uh, trying to uh, to preserve a kind of a sense of the 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 beauty the fluid beauty of 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 the language of of the music of language and i think that even though it may not be in in vogue these days i think that martin had a, a very strong sense of what beauty was in language and he managed to convey it it may not ring true with the uh the people in the lit crit world but I think to the average person, what Martin what Martin was saying was uh, rang true very much. You know, you you mentioned Raymond Smolian, and uh, there's a there's a story that uh, may even though it's a Ray Smolian story and not a Martin Gardner story, it may really illustrate 
the way a, a very simple thought process can uh, can inspire somebody to think about these paradoxical issues. And Ray Smolian, I don't know if you recall this, but he was actually on The Tonight Show one night with Johnny Carson. No, I didn't know this. I yeah. He had a book out, and, uh, you know, Johnny Carson was uh, an amateur magician as well. Oh, I and, didn't know that. Yeah, and he was very attracted to these kinds of things. Johnny Carson, also a, a very passionate amateur astronomer, a, a big uh, donor to uh, James Randi's uh, debunking efforts, in fact. No kidding. Yeah. This is a fascinating revelation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so Ray Smullyan is sitting on the Johnny Carson show, and he's talking about the fact that when he was uh, a little boy, his older brother had told him on April Fool's Day to watch out because he, the older brother was going to play quite a trick on him on April Fool's Day. And April Fool's Day came and went. And Ray Smolian, the little boy, said to his brother the next day, so, you know, what was the trick? And the brother said, you waited all day for the trick, and it never happened. That was the trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this anecdote. I certainly remember the anecdote. And very typical of, as you say, it's not a Martin story, but it's the kind of story that Martin savored. And as, a, as you point out very well, this is a, a perfect example of, of paradox. And uh, Martin's uh, columns about the unexpected hanging are all about this very issue, um, uh, the sort of the the conflict between uh, the what I guess technically they would call the the object level and the meta level. I mean, there was no surprise at the at the at the base level at the object level but there was a surprise at the meta level because there wasn't because that the surprise was that there wasn't a surprise and this kind of thing is um is is very very important as it turns out many people think of it as 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 kind of silly or uh, just game playing but it turns out that these ideas are at the roots of um these ideas about self reference are also at the roots of self reproduction they're at the roots of how living uh, living beings uh, reproduce themselves because the same mechanisms of self-reference have to be used in order for an object, a machine, or a molecule to reproduce itself. And uh, and this is the kind of thing that Martin would point out in his columns that you know there is a profound link between what seem to be maybe lighthearted or uh, paradoxes and extremely deep things, things that are at the very core of all of human existence or all of life, for that matter. Uh, it's just the kind of thing that Martin would point out and savor uh, in, his, in his columns. Mm-hmm. 